0: Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. But then, uh, and this is a confession, I, I have lied to you because what I've said is the third level of parables is judgment. Uh, and those take place in the final week of Jesus' life after the triumphal entry, if you guys remember me saying that. Well, here's how I have lied to you. Today, this one is actually a judgment parable. It's a great transition from grace to judgment, but it takes place right before the triumphal entry. So um, if, you can, if you can grant forgiveness on that, it would be much appreciated. Uh, but in this week, if we're going to understand this parable that we're going to talk about this week, we have to understand the context that leads up to it. Uh, if you read your Bible, you see even, even my reference, I said we're going to be in Matthew 19 and 20. We're actually going to be in Matthew 20, but we're going to get there via Matthew 19. You'd be interested to know that right after Matthew 19 comes Matthew 20. Uh, now, those chapters and subheadings and little things in your Bible, those were added for, hel- uh, for helpful reference. But that doesn't mean that all of those things are necessarily divided. It also doesn't mean that all those things happen in a linear fashion like we think of. But here, in the way Matthew sets up uh, his recording of the work of Jesus, he puts this parable uh, in, in a particular place for a particular reason. And so if we're going to understand the parable, we've got to understand what leads up to it. And before that, uh, Jesus has this encounter. It's not a parable. It's an encounter, actual encounter with this rich young ruler, all right? If you've been in church at all, if you've heard any stories, you've probably heard the story of the rich young ruler that comes up to Jesus. And the question that he asks Jesus is, what work do I have to do to be saved? You guys remember that? We've preached on it before, not in the context of the parable we're going to look at. But, but basically, this young, attractive, rich guy. Everybody got, everybody got that guy in mind, Right? We all know who, like, we've all got that dude, Chad, or what, whatever his name is. Um, this, this, uh, what would you say? Brett. Chaz. Chaz. All right, whatever his name may be, all right, that's, that's, that's beside the point, walks up to Jesus and asks a very sincere question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he addresses Jesus as good teacher, and Jesus does what he always does, when he knows there's an angle, when he knows there's an agenda, he upends the question, which I love and hate. I love it when it's not me asking the agenda question, but I, uh, but I hate it when it is me asking the agenda, agenda question. But he says, Why do you call me good? And like so he doesn't let him get away with anything. He does it like, and the guy's like, Okay, just give me the answer. And so Jesus says, Cake. Follow all the commandments, and this guy's got a pretty reasonable view of himself, and he says, "I've done that." <laughs> that was sarcasm. He he does not have a, a sober view of himself, um, but he says, "I've done that," and so Jesus responds and says, "Well, if, if you want to be perfect, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, follow me." And the rich young ruler, remember what he does? He walks away. Sad. Why? Because he had lots of stuff. And then Jesus turns to his disciples. Right after this guy walks away, Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says, truly, I say to you. Now, sometimes we have this stoic view of Jesus, right? As if he were to turn from this and, and turn to his disciples, his friends, that he's, like, with all the time, and go, truly, I say to you. This is Jesus going, All right, guys, there's a lesson from this, okay? And the reason I say this is because Jesus was fully human, and I think it it helps us to see these not as these lofty engagements here, but they're real people. So he says, guys, listen. I'm going to give you some insight on what happened here. Here's the deal. It's really hard for a rich person to get into heaven. In fact, guys, it's easier to fit a camel through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to get into heaven. Now, I don't know if that was a common idiom of that day. <laughs> like, I'd have been like, okay, that's drastic. Now, scholars have tried to discern, was that a common, you know, it's easier to get a camel through an eye of a needle than to get Jehoiakim, to plow his field on time, right? I I don't know if that was a a common saying. Um, But scholars try to discern exactly what Jesus is saying here, and most agree that he's probably just saying it's easier to fit a camel through an eye of a needle. Now, the needles probably wouldn't have been the same as our day, but there's another thought, uh, a potential alternative of what Jesus was saying. And and I think... um, I agree that he's probably saying exactly what he says here, but I like the visual that this creates. Some, some scholars think that what Jesus was saying here is, so camels are, are pack animals, especially uh, in the desert areas. You, if you had a lot of stuff, if you were going someplace, you pack it on your camel. If you've seen pictures of, of camels with these giant things over their humps that, and they're carrying these big stuff, and that way you don't have to carry it. And some scholars, although they're not trying to take away from what he's saying here, but the visual, I think, is helpful. It's as if you were, uh, and, and then the gates of the cities were very narrow for security reasons. And so it's as if, if you were to walk up to the city and you had all of your stuff packed on your camel, but your camel couldn't fit through the gate of the city. And it's as if you were to look at that and go, well, I guess I just can't go into the city. I guess I just can't be here. Or imagine um, if you load up the family truckster or or the family minivan, and you drive across country, and you're pumped to to go on vacation, but you have luggage piled high on top, and then you get to the hotel, and you can't fit into the parking garage of the hotel because your stuff is all packed up, and you're like, well, dang, I guess we can't go on vacation." and you turn around and go home. The disciples are astonished and they said to him, which is a good question, well then who can be saved? If this guy who's followed all the commandments, if he can't get in, who can be saved? And in verse 19, uh, chapter 19 verse 26, it says Jesus looked at them. Now, that's on purpose, that saying. It's not like this, you know, this dramatic stare, but there's an element to a pause there. Jesus looked at them potentially with the great cosmic understanding of all throughout history. People have been faced with the opportunity to be reconciled to God, to give up all these things, and day after day after day, year after year, millennia after millennia, they've said, "Ah, I'll go with my stuff. Imagine the thoughts going on as Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, with man, it's impossible. You guys can't do it. You've never done it. You've never walked away from your stuff. But but with God, all things are possible. So I would invite you at this point to kind of maybe take a look at ourselves with a little bit of sobriety and and wonder, what, what would I do? What do I do? What do I practice? Do I really love my stuff that much? How do I process this thought? How do I process this statement that Jesus just made? We're quick, right? If we're honest, and you've heard this before, we're quick to go, right, with God, all things are possible, and we just jump right to that, but maybe with a little sobriety, we look at ourselves and go, ooh, that hits, and it's at this point that Jesus tells a parable to kind of drive this point home a little bit. The parable is only in Matthew, and I'll tell you why in a little bit. But Matthew is going to put this in monetary terms, but this parable is also in justice terms. It could also be in religious terms, pride, righteousness. Take your pick. So, in in, in general, uh, as a uh, re- predominantly religious suburb of Saint Louis, in Saint Charles, there is a lot of practiced religion here. Um, and by and large, St. Charles has a measure of material means. We're going to read this parable and see if we can't figure out what Jesus might ask us to digest here. All right? So let me read this parable, Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. If you want to follow along, we'll have it on the, on the uh, screen behind me. Okay? Let me read it. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, that's basically a day's wage, he sent them into his vineyard, and going on about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever's right, I'll give you. So they went, and going out again about the sixth hour, And the ninth hour, he did the same, verse 6. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said, because no one's hired us. And he said to them, which is funny, at the eleventh hour of the day. And he said to them, let me find out where I'm at here. Um, Because, uh, let's see, he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, verse 8. Verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a full denarius. Verse 10. Now when those hired first came, they thought, We're going to get more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked for only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend? Now, interpretation this does not mean friend, okay? This means more like buddy, pal, right? In in that sense, not like in the buddy, pal. The owner says, Trey translation, hey, pal, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. You can respond by saying, thanks be to God. So let me ask you something. What's your reaction to this? What's going on in here? What's going on in here? Exactly. Where do you see yourself in this story? Uh, what, What do you feel, or maybe who do you feel for? in this story? Who do you feel like in this story? I asked my wife that question. She was like, shut up. She didn't really say that. My wife is wonderful. You got a good grasp on that? On your your gut level reactions to this? All right, let me read it again. And uh, this one I'm going to read as it's retold. The book that we've, we've kind of used to go through this is, uh, is called uh, Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment um, by a guy named Robert Farrar Capon. And, and I'm going to read to you how he retells this story, okay? Because I think it's fantastic. The writing is, ama- is amazing. All right, so hang with me. There was a man who owned a vineyard. Now his operation is not on the scale of like E and J Gallo, but it was quite respectable. Let's let's put him in the Robert Mondavi class. We first see this gentleman on the evening of the second Sunday in October. September has been a perfect month, hot and dry, bringing the grapes to about 20 degree Brie. But his meteorologi- meteorolo- ah, was so amped to get this meteorological service tells him that the weather's about to turn into cold soup. So what does our friend Robert do? He gets gets up first thing Monday morning, goes down to what passes for the local hiring hall and contracts for as much day labor as he can pick up. Now, unfortunately, every other grower in the neighborhood uses the same weather reports, so he has to promise a higher pay to get the workers he needs. 120 bucks for the day is the figure that finally guarantees him a crew. Robert loads his crew into a couple old school buses, puts them to work chop chop. Just before 9 a.m., Robert gets another weather report. They have moved the start of three weeks of rain from Wednesday back to Tuesday. He just has one day, not two, to get the harvest in. Out he goes at 9, therefore, and with increasing panic at noon, and three to hire on still more hands. And each time he succeeds in rounding up all the available help, giving him the now-practiced line that he is Robert Mundabi, the famous payer of Top Dollar, who is also Mr. Fairness himself. Whatever is right, they will get. And it's a huge harvest, though. And with only one hour left before dark, Robert realizes he's not going to get it in on time without more help. So he goes out again. But this time, the hiring hall is closed, and the village square has only its usual crowd of Up to the minute losers hanging out in haze of smoke. You know the types lots of leather, some girls and their boyfriends with more moose than brains, six packs everywhere, music that ruptures the eardrums. What the heck, Robert thinks. In desperation, it's worth a shot. He walks up to the group, ostentatiously switches off the offending ghetto blaster. This is a bit dated. Uh, (laughs) And goes into a spiel. He's Robert Mondavi, he's famous. He's fair. They could probably use a buck. So what do they think? Well, they think, of course, what they think, of course, is also, eh, what the heck. Whatever he wants them to do, it won't take long. Whatever he pays, it's at least a couple more six-packs for the night, so off they go. Now then, run your mind back over the story so far. I'm sure you know exactly what happens each time one of those new batches of workers gets dropped off at the vineyard, before they pick even a single grape, they make sure to find out from the other workers already on the job the exact per diem amount which Robert Mondavi is basing his chances at the Guinness Book of World Records for this harvest. And since they are, like the rest of the human race, inveterate bookkeepers, they take the $120 figure, divide it by 12, and multiply it by the number of hours they'll be working. And, then, and only then do they put hand to the grape, secure in the knowledge that they will be getting respectively and for the last group, $10. Robert, however, has a surprise for them. At the end of the day, he's a happy man, and with his best and biggest harvest on its way to the stemmer crusher, he feels expansive and a little frisky. So he says to his foreman, I have an idea. I'm going to fill the pay envelopes myself, but when you give them out, I want you to do it backwards, beginning with the last ones hired. Once again, I'm sure you know what happens. When the first girl with the purple hair gets her envelope and walks away opening it, she finds six crisp new 20s inside. And what does she do? No, of course not. She does not slow down uh, and report the overage. She keeps on walking fast. But then her shirt open to the waist boyfriend catches up with her and tells her he got $120 too. Well, Dear old nature, human nature triumphs again. They can't resist to go back and tell everybody else what jerks they were for sweating the whole day in the hot sun when they could have made the same money for an hour's work. And the entail of Adam's transgression being what it is, however, the workers who were on the job longer come up with yet another example of totally unoriginal sin. On hearing that Robert Mondavi is now famous for paying $120 an hour... They put their mental bookkeeping machinery into reverse and floor the pedal. And what do they come up with? Oh, rapturous joy! They conclude that they are now about to become the proud possessors of, in order, four hundred and eighty, or eight hundred and forty, or even, bless you, oh Lord, Robert Mondavi, fourteen hundred and forty dollars. But Robert, like God, is crazy, not stupid. Like God, he has arranged for the recompense to be based only, uh, uh, let's see, based only on the weird goodness uh, that he is most famous for, not the just desserts they have infamously imagined for themselves. Every last envelope they find has six twenties in it. No more for those who worked all day, and no less for those who didn't, which, of course, goes down like Gatorade for the last bunch hired, Like dishwasher soap for the next to last, like vinegar for the almost first, and like hot sulfuric acid for the first ones hired. Predictably, therefore, on the lame-brained principle that those who are most outraged should argue the case for those who are less so, wisdom should have whispered to them, reply in anger, and you'll make the best speech you'll ever regret." The sweatiest and the most exhausted decide to give Robert a hard time. Hey, man, they say, you call this a claim to fame? Those punks over there only work one hour and we knock ourselves out all day? How come you made them equal to us? Robert, however, has his speech in his pocket, ready to go. Look, pal, he tells the spokesman for all the bookkeepers who have gaggled who have gagged on this parable for 2,000 years. Don't give me trouble. You agreed to $120 a day, and I gave you $120 a day. Take it and get out of here before I call the cops. If I want to give some pothead and Gucci loafers the same pay as you, so what? You're telling me I can't do what I want with my own money? I'm supposed to be a stinker because you got your nose out of joint? All I did was had a fun idea. I decided to put the last first and the first last to show you there are no insiders or outsiders here. When I'm happy, everybody's happy, no matter what they did or didn't do. I'm not asking you to like me, buddy. I'm telling you to enjoy me. If you want to mope, that's your business. But Since the only thing that'll get you is a lousy disposition, why don't you shut up, go to the tasting room, have yourself a free, free glass of Chardonnay. Choice is up to you, friend. Drink up or get out. Now, how do you feel? Just sit in that for a minute. Doesn't make it any better. I'll I'll ask you a question. Is anyone sitting here or at home on your couch going, yeah, I think this is perfectly acceptable and reasonable? No. I'd venture to say no. But in this, maybe we can see how the parables of outrageous grace... Can start to lead to the parables of judgment. When it becomes outrageous grace for the other guy. When it becomes unfair. And yet we know, we know inside grace is not a term about fairness. But even still, when you apply it like this, come on. Let me give you some insight on on why this is found in the the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, why all of the parables of judgment are found in the Gospel of Matthew. John is written to, we'll we'll do a little test. John is written to who? Anybody know? Right, the Greeks. Very good. Uh, John is primarily written to the Greeks. Mark, we did this a few years ago, Anybody know who Mark's written to? Mark is written to Gentile believers in Rome, telling these Gentile believers, hang in there, the person you have put your faith in is the Messiah. That's what Mark is trying to do. Luke, Luke's a historian. Luke has been hired out by his dear friend Theophilus, and he writes Luke and Acts. So Luke is writing a historical account of the life of Jesus and the birth of the church. Matthew is written to the Jews his fellow Jews, yes, to try to convince them this is the Messiah, this is the completion. But Matthew writing to the Jews, this is the religious establishment that he was writing to. These are the people who have worked hard and upheld the law and worked hard to hold up the law All the while, their very foundation of their relationship with God has been on a foundation of grace and mercy, His grace and mercy, but still, we've been holding this up for a long time. God didn't change things up on them. In fact, God is actually fulfilling all that He has promised. But we see something at work in human nature through these parables. All of the judgment parables, what we see... And that's this. Spiritually speaking, human beings are all ultimately bookkeepers at heart. Right? We keep tabs. We keep tabs on us, whether those are honest tabs or not. We, we keep tabs on us. But you better believe we keep tabs on others. Let me tell you something that I do. This is confession. I'm sure none of you do this. Sometimes I walk along and, and I feel like I'm doing all right. Right? I feel that, like a level of humility that I'm thinking of others, you know, in high esteem uh, until I get compared to s- like a specific someone or something. And, and I'm like, ah, And this is where it gets tricky, okay? This is where it gets tricky. Listen, I am reformed. I believe wholeheartedly. I hold to the doctrines of grace. I see and I trust in the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God is a profound mystery to me. And what's even a more profound mystery to me is people who proclaim to believe in the sovereignty of God who are somehow filled with pride and arrogance. That is a huge profound mystery to me because the more I believe in the sovereignty of God, the less I feel confident in my answers, the more mysterious God is to me, and I'm like, man, I gotta trust this guy because uh, I don't, I don't get it, especially with stuff like this. And here's what's evident. Um, here, here's as is evident in this parable. I am, I am fully committed to, though not always appreciative of the fact that God gets to do what he wants. And I believe wholeheartedly that he is good. But what's tricky here? It is not the judgment of God that befalls these workers. God is just and fair to these workers. Is he not? To every one of them? It's their own judgment that befalls them. If they're getting the same deal that we are and they didn't work as hard as we did, then forget it. I'm out. Here again, this is translated in monetary terms, but certainly not limited to that. And I, I'm, I'm, hear me, hear me, okay. I am not, I have not said a word about politics, about economy, about business, how this, like this, I haven't said a word about that. We got to flesh that out in in another time. What I am telling you is, this is what Jesus says, his words about how the kingdom of heaven works. You can deal with the other stuff on your own time. This is what Jesus says about how the kingdom of heaven works. Martin Luther coined the term in his 95 theses, all of life is repentance. You want to know why I think that's good? Martin Luther's, you know, I, I, can, I can tolerate a lot of Martin Luther. There's some things that I go, uh, but this one I, I agree with. All of life is repentance. Let me tell you why I think that's good. Some people hear this and go, okay, so we're just supposed to walk around all day long feeling bad about ourselves? Uh, we're just supposed to go, ah, oh, I'm so terrible, I'm so awful, I'm so wicked. Uh, no, I don't think that's what Martin Luther means, and I don't, know, I don't think that's what all of life is repentance means. Um. And I don't think that's what it is to be a follower of Jesus, to walk around miserable all all day talking about how terrible and wicked you are. Here's why I appreciate this statement. For me, it reminds me often that no matter how well I'm doing or how poorly I am doing, I have not earned my place here. It is a gift. Grace is not a bookkeeping term. To fully grasp that, to let that work in me, is to begin to loosen my grip on this statement, I deserve more. It helps me to actually rejoice when God demonstrates outrageous grace to others, even if they don't look like me, act like me, vote like me even if they don't fit into my categories. It's actually a radical freedom to enjoy the giver of all good things and to know that our God is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. And not only, in fact, does it allow me to enjoy the giver of all good things, but it also calls me to join with him in this labor that the last might be first. To give high esteem to those who I may be tempted to look down on or look past. That one day, at the great feast of all feasts, where this Robert Mondavi wine may flow like the sparrows of Capistrano, that I would even get to empty the ashtrays of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, and that that would be one of the greatest honors I could ever even imagine. Lord, please let us remember that we are not here because of our wisdom, because of our good decision-making, because of our nationality or our moralism or our earthly importance or our cultural or economic standing. In fact, those things can mess us up to trick us into thinking that somehow we deserve or we have earned the grace and favor of God. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Run with the Horses, says this, Add some nuance to this. This is an either-or, but, but feel this. Some people come to church looking for a way to make life better and feel good about themselves. To see things in a better light, they arrange a ritual and they hire a preacher to make that happen for them. Other people come to church because they want God to save and rule over them. They accept the fact that there are temptations and sufferings and sacrifices involved in leaving a way of life in which they are, they are in control and plunging into an uncertain existence in which God is in control. One group of people sees religion as a way to a successful, happy life. The other group sees religion as a way in which hurt, flawed, and damaged persons become whole in relation to God. One way is a way of enhancing what I want. The other way is a way, is a commitment of myself to become what God wants. let's finish here. Can we put ourselves back into this story? And and let's probably be honest. Most of us probably fall in the category of the ones who labor all day. And then somebody comes along and, and gets the same thing. So feel that coming up. We've been living moral lives. We've been good stewards of our money. We've lived responsibly. We've worked hard in these areas. And then we get hit with the reality that God's grace does not simply reward my hard work. But it's radical and it's outrageous. Can I delight still in the goodness of God? Can I labor and rejoice that the owner of the vineyard is still good and fair and right and generous? Can I prepare my heart and practice singing the praises of such a gracious God when it is applied to the 11th hour workers? Can there and even there, can I still raise my glass high to the king? Let's pray. Jesus, um, religion, practicing the faith, obedience. These things are good when they are stewarded uh, with humility and grace. But man, can they be dangerous when they make me think that I am somehow better than someone else. That somehow I deserve more. us in humility and weakness that we would l- learn to delight in you and therefore delight in the things that you do you have the right, you are in the heavens you do as you please may we rejoice in that delight in that even when we see it applied generously maybe to somebody else We are sinful, so we ask that you would deal with us patiently and graciously, but definitely. See where there are any wicked ways in us. Forgive us of willful sins that they would not rule over us. Lead us in the way everlasting for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.